The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 1 through 35. It can be found on page 918 in the Black Bibles. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter. Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, these three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. 
And as he talked with them, he went, down, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I went for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Rob. Y'all, that was Rob's first time to volunteer as a reader, and I gave him like the longest passage ever. So, <laughs> might be the last. No, thanks, Rob. Uh, my name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. It's great to see y'all. Thanks for being here. Uh, wanted to give you a quick report before we talk about this text that Rob just read for us. Uh, if you were here a month ago, you heard uh, Chris Dewhurst get up and tell you that we were about 1.1 million um, short on our budget going into the last month. And I wanted to, I mean, it's fun to share this really encouraging news about how God has been at work through his people. So um, at the end of the year, uh, after everything's come in, we ended up uh, with an extra $231,676, which is just incredible. Uh, it, it made me think of, yeah, praise the Lord. It made me think of um, what that Hudson Taylor prayer I referenced um, last week, um, that we would be praying that God would do his work through us. And so I do want to thank you, but I also just want to Praise the Lord for him doing the work through his people. So uh, to that end, let's pray and praise him now. Father, we do give you praise and thanks for your generosity. And Lord, um, I pray that even as we, as the, the leadership of the church thinks about how to utilize that extra money that you've blessed us with, that you would make our church really generous with it. Uh, help us to serve our neighbors with that money. Help us to, to think um, the way that you think um, generously uh, for the good of others and not for ourselves. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that even now, as we look at your word, that you would help us to see how you have been um, graciously generous towards sinners. And I pray that you would help us to see that now. Um, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was fortunate in college to get to spend a summer studying abroad in Europe. And not too long ago, I was looking at some of the pictures that my friends and I took while we were there. And kind of a disturbing thing um, came to my realization. As I was looking at pictures of the Mona Lisa and the Eiffel Tower and the Leaning Tower of Pisa, I realized that none of those images, none of those like works of art or statues or whatever were in the foreground. You know who's in the foreground of all those pictures? Me. 
I was. You know, Mona Lisa's in the background. I'm, I'm like doing her pose or I've got my finger on the Eiffel Tower or I'm doing the, what I thought was like a really original idea, like acting like I was, I was kicking over the Leaning Tower. It's, apparently it's not very original. But as I looked at, at that, and this was before... Um, Kids, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I didn't have a smartphone in college. This was before selfies were even a thing. And I'm looking at that and thinking like, wow, I was, I think I was kind of like right there at the beginning of like the selfie culture. Like I want to take a picture of myself that's in front of whatever important thing. But the really important part of this picture that I'm communicating and the way this picture is being taken is me. And our culture has just continued on that trend. We live as if um, things and people are in our own personal backgrounds and are a symbol of our own personal status. And we live as if ourselves, our preferences, our comfort, our lives are the most important. And one of the results of this is that we are really good at loving people who we want to be in our background. We're really good at loving people that we think make us feel good about ourselves, And in our own self-interest, we're good at loving people who don't disturb our own comfort or even our own ideals. But this isn't God's standard of love. And that's what we see in this passage. That God's standard of love is not just that his people would love those who make them feel comfortable or who fit their ideals but that we would love everyone, including our enemies, including those who maybe make us feel uncomfortable or who are different from us. And I want you to see that this is not, this is not a statement rooted in political correctness. This is a statement rooted in who God is. That God in his essence is unified. He is one God and yet diverse Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is unified and diverse. And what we see, even if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, first sin, when Adam and Eve sin, they hide from God and from one another. And I want you to, I want you to see that God's work is not only to reconcile man to himself, which it is. He does that through the work of Jesus but also through the work of Jesus and his spirit as we see demonstrated over and over and over again in the book of Acts, God is reconciling us to one another. Just as Adam and Eve are hiding from God and from each other in the garden, we do that too. And so God is reconciling us to himself and through the work of his spirit and his church, he's reconciling us to one another. So as we consider this, I really wanna look at two things. First, our hearts and second, God's heart, our heart and God's heart. And I'm getting help from pastors like Russ Whitfield, Brian Habig, who have heard preach on this, and even our, our staff have been so thankful for their insights into this passage as we meet on our Tuesday morning sermon prep meetings. They've been a huge blessing to me. Um, so first off, let's talk about our hearts. You've got to remember what Jesus says that kind of to frame this passage at the very beginning of Acts. Do you remember what he tells his disciples right before he's about to ascend into heaven? We talked about this. He says, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea. And they would have been probably nodding their head at that point. Yeah, hometown, love Jerusalem and Judea. Great. 
And the next place he would have said would have kind of made their head go like this. Samaria and the ends of the earth. But then what we see, and commentators say there's kind of four, these four major conversions that happen from Acts chapters 6 through 8. And it's those, it's, it's what Jesus said in Acts 1 being fulfilled. First, these Samaritans are converted. Next, somebody who would have been from the ends of the earth, an Ethiopian eunuch, is converted. And then Saul, the enemy of God's people, is converted. And then this is kind of the climactic conversion that we find. Cornelius, who would have been considered to many of um, God's people, to the Jews, an enemy, but I want, what I want to um, argue today is that there's actually a fifth conversion happening here, and it's with Peter. Peter's already a Christian, but Peter is having a cross-cultural conversion. He's having a conversion of understanding about how much bigger God's heart is than our own for the nations. God is going to do a reconciling work through his people Two people who are different than them. And this isn't, part, this isn't like a hobby for people who are interested in things like this. This is part of Peter being changed and made more like Jesus, which is called sanctification. This is part of Peter being made more like Jesus. And so God, God prepares Peter for this because he knows it's going to be hard for Peter to process and God's all in this. He's, he sends a vision to Cornelius, and then he sends this vision to Peter. But unlike Cornelius, who when he gets this vision is totally scared and terrified, Peter does something that's very uncommon. You don't really see this in the Bible, but he has a debate during the vision. All of these animals that Peter would have seen as, you know, not kosher. I'm not supposed to eat those animals, to touch those animals. All these animals are on a sheet, and he hear, Peter hears this voice from heaven saying, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter starts debating. By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What God has made clean do not call common, Peter. And they do this three times. Peter is repulsed by the food, but God is showing him it's not just about the food on the sheet. It's a representation of the way Peter's heart is repulsed by the Gentiles, by those people. But because of the work that God's doing, God knows that we can't really have fellowship with somebody if we're not willing to sit at a table with them. I mean, just think about if you're trying to get to know maybe a new client in your, in your business. You got a new client. What are, you more like, what are you most likely to ask them to go do? Meet for lunch or a coffee or a breakfast. Because if we want fellowship, we have a meal with somebody. Maybe, you're, maybe your child comes home from college and they've, they've, they've got a new boyfriend or girlfriend. What do you do with them? You have a meal with them. You meet their parents. You have a meal with those parents. You don't go play like mini golf with them first. That's not the first step. You don't go on a walk with him first. That's not the first step. We share a meal because we can't have fellowship with someone unless we're willing to sit at a table with them. I remember when I was growing up, I had a high school girlfriend in North Alabama. She invited me for the first time to go and have a meal with her extended family. And they lived like out in the country, like a town of like 300 people. 
So I get out into, <laughs> into this, uh, this meal. They've got a whole table spread out. And some, I've told some of y'all this. I'm like a, I was especially, I'm not a picky eater anymore. I've been healed by the grace of God. But I was a really picky eater growing up. So this is like my nightmare scenario trying to eat food that someone else has prepared and they're all judging me and I'm terrified. And I walk up to this meat and I, right as I'm about to just, you know, leap of faith, put it on my plate, her grandfather kind of appears right next to my shoulder and goes, I hope you like possum. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm looking back on that story. I'm pretty sure that wasn't possum. I think he was messing with me. But I wasn't sure in the moment. And so, but I want to have fellowship with them. I want to have fellowship with them. So I just scooped it onto my plate, said my prayers and gagged it down. We can't have fellowship with someone though unless we're willing to share a table with them. And the Lord knows this. And as Peter, it says, is perplexed by, in verse 17, he's perplexed about this vision. What does this mean? Why, why is God telling me this? God's been preparing this moment. He's, he's sent these men, he's, sent, he's given them a vision, he's sent them to Peter. Peter's wondering what this means and there's a knock at his door and he goes and he opens the door and the last people he would have wanted to have fellowship with are standing there. His political enemy, a Roman soldier, is standing at the door with two servants and they've been sent by an even more powerful member of his political enemy, a Roman centurion, which means a centurion century. He, they would have had a hundred soldiers under them. Cornelius is this powerful Roman political figure who is the enemy of Peter. So much so that, remember in Acts 1, when Jesus is about to send into heaven and the disciples are like, all right, when are we taking care of this Rome problem? You've resurrected. When are we going to get the kingdom back? That's what they're thinking of. But Jesus' vision is so much bigger than political power here on earth that comes and goes. Jesus is interested in a kingdom that he is bringing to this earth that he reigns over, that all nations are welcome to. And so he's demonstrating this to Peter, gives him this vision, and now here is his political enemy at the doorstep. Peter's getting a sense of the ugliness of his own heart, of how he thinks these people are unclean. And aren't we like this too? All of us have people in our lives who in some way or another are kind of like those people. Those people who are the problem in the world. Those people who make me particularly angry. Those people who are my enemy. Those people who make me feel uncomfortable. And if you don't think that, we, that, that this is how, <laughs> what we believe, I, I would suggest to you consider the titles of YouTube descriptions of videos that are suggested to you. If you sign on YouTube and you look at the videos that are suggested for you to watch, anything that's like political of nature, usually this is what pops up. It won't be, it, it'll say something like, progressive student destroys Fox News anchor. Or it'll say something like, conservative politician annihilates social justice warrior. Think about the verbs that we use, that are being used in these YouTube videos. Destroys, annihilates, embarrasses, owns. Like, none of the YouTube videos are titled, two people show each other respect while disagreeing. 
Those aren't out there. Or maybe they, if they are, they've got like three views and no one's watching them. But do you know why those are the videos that are suggested to you? Because the algorithm that's suggesting it to you knows that those titles are the ones that grab our attention, that make us want to click on it. The algorithm has an insight into our hearts that what we really want is to see our enemies or the other destroyed, annihilated, embarrassed. Who are those people in your life? The people who make you angry or uncomfortable? Do you look at someone as they walk into church and determine that you don't care to know them because of what they're wearing or what they look like? Of course we all do this. Maybe it's because of how they're dressed too nice or they're dressed not nice enough or they're dressed in a way that you can tell that their culture is different from yours. If you're here this morning and you are a doubter, Maybe you're not a Christian, you're not sure you want to be a Christian. Perhaps you've looked at the history of the church and you know, the church has, there's a lot of sad history about how the church is related to people who are from different races and ethnicities and cultures. And perhaps you've looked, you look at that history and you think, why would I want to be part of a religion that promotes that? But I, what I want you to see is that that's not what the God of this religion promotes. That is not the heart of God. It's, that is the result of broken sinners, of broken sinners who hurt people. And listen, our theology of grace and repentance means that we can actually ask God for forgiveness for that, if that's us, and believe that there's grace, not cancellation. Our culture only knows how to cancel somebody. What we have here is a God who's sending his people to those who are so different from them, who's bringing them actually right to their doorstep so that there can be reconciliation. This is God's heart. This is God's heart. Not that we simply tolerate somebody who's different from us. That's, that's, that's the, the, the best virtue that our culture has, is that you would have tolerance, that you would tolerate them. But the Christian life, we are called instead to love. Not to, no one wants to be toler, just tolerated, by the way. Right? We want to be loved. We're longing to be loved, not just tolerated. And that's what God's heart is. It's not a heart that simply tolerates. It won't, in fact, it actually won't tolerate the way that Peter sees his Gentile neighbor. But out of love, God calls Peter to a different way of living and seeing. So in verse 28, I want you to think about God's heart. Peter, <laughs> Peter is about to walk into Cornelius' house. He's like, listen, you know that this is taboo for me, but why does he do it? God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter has seen God's heart he says later in verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He's seen into God's heart. But I also want you to see that Peter has remembered who he is. One of the ways that Peter is able to enter in is Peter remembers his standing. 
Look at verse 26. Peter shows up. Cornelius is like probably amped up. He had this vision. Someone's coming to my house. The guy walks in and, and Cornelius and, his, and the people, they start to worship Peter. And Peter stops them and he stops them and he says, I too am a man. Don't worship me because I too am a man. You know what Peter's remembering? He is remembering his own humanity. He's remembering his own flaws. He's remembering, I mean, think about some of the flaws that we know about Peter in his story up until this point. He doubts Jesus. He denies Jesus. He runs away from Jesus. He rebukes Jesus. And yet Jesus restores Peter. What Peter, remember, remember on the night that he's going to betray Jesus or deny Jesus? The night that he's going to deny him, what does Jesus do? Before Peter's feet walk out the door to go deny Jesus, Jesus gets down to wash those deniers' feet. And when he's about to do it, Peter's like, no, 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 don't, you can't do this to me, Jesus. Don't, don't do this. And, and, and Jesus says, Peter, unless I clean you, you have nothing to do with me. Peter, you're dirty. Peter, you're just as unclean and dirty as anybody else including those Gentiles. You too are a man, Peter. And yet, Jesus pours out his grace upon him. It's God's heart that compels Peter to live differently. I want you to think, what if, where would we be, where would we be if Jesus treated us and spoke of us the way that we are sometimes the way that we sometimes speak or treat others who are different than us? What if Jesus spoke and treated us that way? What if Jesus said, you know what, we're just different? What if Jesus said that to his father? Father, we're just different. I mean, I'm holy, they're unholy. Um, I'm faithful, they're not faithful. What if Jesus had had that conversation in heaven with God? We're just different. Why should I go? Why should I cross boundaries and go into the world? We're just different. Or what if Jesus, upon considering whether or not he should cross the boundary from heaven to earth, what if instead he said, they don't want anything to do with me? Don't we say that sometimes? They don't want anything to do with me. Father, the psalmist says no one seeks for God. That means they don't want anything to do with me. I don't want to impose upon them. What if Jesus said, they'll reject me if I try to move towards them in love? They'll reject me. He would have been right. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. He was despised and rejected by men. Where would we be if God wasn't willing to move toward people who he knew would reject him? What if Jesus had said, why am I responsible for helping them? Why am I responsible for that? Their problems aren't my problems. What if Jesus had said that? Father, let, they can figure it out. You know what? They've had the same opportunities as, as I have to love you and to obey you. Why should I go? Why should I cross boundaries into earth and to enter their life? But instead, I want you to see that our salvation depends on this kind of cross-cultural love that crosses over boundaries. Jesus, who was not like us, Jesus was not like us, became like us. He became a man. And Jesus, who was not like us, became like us so that we, who were not like him, could become like him. The Christian life is shaped by the cross-cultural love of God that ultimately led God to a cross. 
and our call to love people from different cultures, classes, races, ages, political viewpoints, whatever, is not about adding to the gospel. It's about adding up the gospel. It's about adding up the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And this isn't about like some condescending, we need to go and like save people. Instead, it's seeing that no one needs the gospel more than we do. And in Christ, we've been given it. And so we share it because you too are a man. You too are a woman. And I want you to see, Peter actually doesn't get it right for the rest of his life. In Galatians 2, he starts doing the same thing again. He starts seeing the Gentiles as those people and he distances himself from him. And Paul calls him out because he says, what Peter is doing, is, it's, it is in conflict with the very gospel that we believe. And so friends, my question to you, my question to you is, where do we start? What do we do with this? This, cross, this call to cross-cultural love. Now, if you, if you consider this passage, what you see is God is at work putting everyone where they are. No one's, no one's anywhere they're not supposed to be outside of God's sovereignty and provision. So my question for you is, just as like God brought Peter into Cornelius' home, whose home is God bringing you into? Who is God already bringing into your homes or around your homes that is different than you, that you distance yourself from, that it will take you crossing, being willing to jump over the hurdles to love them rather than waiting behind the hurdles for them to come to you so that you can love them? Who can we move toward and love? Because church, as we do this, if we do this more and more, and I want, you, I want to tell you, I am encouraged by many of you in seeing you do this. I hope you're not, you're not like leaving this thing like with your heads bowed down and feeling bad. I mean, if you need to feel bad, I hope you'll like repent and like turn to Jesus and that there's grace. But like, I also want you to know, man, I'm super encouraged by so many of you and I want to see us living into this more and more because you know what this is? It's a taste of glory. When people who wouldn't typically be sitting together and worshiping together, or who wouldn't be sharing a meal together normally are doing that, we are giving the world a taste of what the new heavens and new earth will be like. We're giving them a taste of the glory of what God has in mind for his world and for his kingdom. We're giving them a taste of that. And so let's be that taste. I mean, listen to how Revelation 7 depicts heaven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Pause, just want to make a note. It's not a few people in heaven. It's a great multitude that John can't even count the number. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And you know what happens in heaven when this diverse crowd of people praises the Lord? Listen to the reaction of the angels and the elders and the living creatures that are in the throne room of God. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying these words. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. These words, these words go up in heaven when God's people act as a family. When all tribes, tongues, languages gather before the throne and praise him, he produces this in heaven. That's a taste. Let's be a church that is a taste of that for our city, for our neighbors. Not for our glory. We're sinners. We're messed up, right? Not for, but for his namesake who's redeemed us and rescued us, who's crossed boundaries to rescue us. May we do that for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you have, um, that you have made every provision to move toward us in love, and so we pray that you would make us a church and a people that make every provision to move toward our neighbor in love. And we pray that we would be energized, not by uh, a need to somehow justify ourselves or our existence, but instead that we would be motivated by the outpouring love and grace that we have received from you as we extend that to our neighbor. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.